The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. He lets me rest in green pastures. He leads me to calm water. He gives me new strength. He leads me on paths that are right for the good of His name. Even if I walk through a very dark valley, I will not be afraid, because you are with me. Your rod and your shepherd's staff comfort me. You prepare a meal for me in front of my enemies. You pour a blessing of oil on my head. You fill my cup to overflowing. Surely your goodness and love will be with me all my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Bow with me in prayer, would you please? God, we are here in this place today to honor you, to lift you up, uh, that you might be exalted, God, that, that our lives would truly reflect a deep love for you. And Lord, I, I pray that even as I share right now, that you would be so bold as to use me in my weakness, me with my own brokenness, Lord, that you would take my head and my heart and allow the words that come out to somehow be transformed into words that would honor you, and that by the power and movement of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak into all of our lives, because you are our Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd. This I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we conclude this series called Who's Your Shepherd Today? And it's an opportunity for us to think once again about this idea of inviting you to ponder who is leading your life. That's really behind the question, who's your shepherd? Who is the one that leads your life? And the reason this is an important question for us is because everybody in this room deals with stress at different places. And stress is a result of us following the wrong shepherd, the wrong leader. We end up getting involved in things like worry and busyness and guilt and grief and grudges and, and dealing with dark valleys and lacking guidance. All of these things are the results of stress. And stress, again, is the result of us not following the right shepherd. So today we're going to talk about the last two issues that Br David brings to our attention. We're going to be talking about hurt and fear. And the first one we're going to look at is hurt. So let's look at this verse, 23rd, Psalm 23, verse 5. I want to invite you to read it with me, if you would, please. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Hurt is one of those things that everybody in this room will experience. Some of us will endure hurt because of accidents or illness that we encounter. But the biggest hurts that we deal with day in and day out, week in and week out, have to do with people and relationships. People are sometimes our greatest blessings and our greatest joys, and yet we know that they can be problematic as well because people hurt us. We hurt people. 
sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally or accidentally. But the problem is, how do we deal with the hurts when they come? How do we respond to the hurts? Well, before we look at God's antidote to the hurts, I want to tell you some things not to do when people hurt you. The first one is, don't ignore it. This is the Chris Pine or Vin Diesel or Clint Eastwood model for dealing with hurts. Because those guys, when they get hurt, they just suck it up and bite the bullet kind of thing. And, and, and that's one thing we should not do. Ignore the hurt. Pretend it doesn't exist. Hope it will go away. You know as well as I do because you've been there and maybe some of you are there right now. Ignoring hurts don't make them disappear. You heard the old saying, time heals all wounds. Well, in the case of grief, I suspect that time does heal most of that. You never lose the sorrow or the sadness of when somebody dies. There's always that emptiness that's, that's there that, that we have. But, but I want to remind you today that, that when you get away from grief, this phrase, time heals our wounds, really isn't applicable. Because you know as well as I do that if you haven't dealt with a hurt, that it's going to keep festering and festering and festering. It just continues to be problematic. Listen to how David said it in Psalm 39. He said, I said to myself, I will watch what I do and not sin in what I say. I will curb my tongue when the ungodly are around me. But as I stood there in silence, not even speaking of good things, the turmoil within me grew to the bursting point. My thoughts grew hot within me and began to burn, igniting a fire of words. Think about it. Has there been an instance recently for you where you've found yourself igniting a fire of words? Maybe it's possible that that is a result of you trying to hide some hurt. The second thing not to do with our hurts is to run from them. This would be the Chris Angel or David Copperfield or maybe the Harry Houdini way of resolving conflict. We try the escape artist approach sometimes and, and try to run. David tried this approach too when he killed his lover's husband, tried to hide, but God found him. It's interesting to me that when we, when we run, we, 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 we panic. Uh, running is typically a result of panic. And interesting that the fire codes that we have in our country mandate that buildings like this, that all the doors exit outwardly. They open outwardly. And that's because when people panic, they run. It's trying to get away from it, trying to hide from the pain that we might have experienced. But David says, don't run from it. We run from hurt. We try to escape it from many different means. We try to escape by going to a movie or watching a show or dealing with it through the use of some drug or even divorce. But the trick, as you probably know, is until you deal with them, you're never going to be done with them. Third, don't hide it. Some people don't run from or ignore their hurt. They hide from it. They keep it to themselves. They don't tell anybody they wear a mask. And I would say that probably everybody in this room knows how to put on a mask pretty well. We know how to hide from whatever is going on. We keep it to ourselves. We don't want somebody else to know. We, pray, we play this game in our society called, Is Something Wrong? And when we ask, is something wrong, we typically say, oh, nothing's wrong. Everything's fine with me. Isn't it interesting that if we're angry, we're quick to tell somebody that we're angry. But if we're hurt, 
we're reticent to do that. And I would invite you to, to think that, that it, it may be that the reason we do that is because of our egos. We don't think we should be able to hurt. We think that, that we're going to be mature enough that nobody's going to hurt me. And so we don't deal with it. Sometimes we try to hide our hurt behind materialism. The next time you go binge shopping, whether it's at the mall or on Amazon, maybe you should ask yourself the question, am I trying to escape from some hurt that I'm dealing with? Possessions never compromise for pain. When you hurt, all the possessions in the world will never get you rid of that hurt. David said in Psalm 32, there was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was, but my dishonesty made me miserable and filled my days with frustration. This is why we say again and again and again to you, Week in and week out, we try to emphasize how important it is to be connected to other God-filled people. Not because they're perfect, but because they're important to helping us learn how to walk our walk and to deal with our pain, to stop hiding from the hurt. James says it this way in chapter 5. He says, For this reason, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful in what it can achieve. When you share your hurt, it's starting the process of getting over it. You'll never get the healing you need if you're still hiding from a hurt. Fourth, when you hurt, don't worry about it. We talked about this in the first session because worry is one of those things that comes up uh, because we have this penchant. We want to control things around us. Everybody in this room wants control of our lives. And very likely, we want control of other people's lives that we live with or that are close to us as well. When we try to control something that we can't control, we worry about it. And remember how I said a couple of weeks ago when I talked about this issue that that is really practical atheism? Because, and then when I say practical atheism, what I'm saying is, look, when we're worrying, what we're really doing is we're saying, I don't trust you, God, to deal with whatever I'm dealing with. I worry about my future. And fifth, don't, the fifth don't when you get hurt is don't resent it. Resentment never helps. Yet we do this when people hurt, it, hurt us. I talked about it in week three of this series when we talked about guilt and grief and grudges. Grudges have to do with how we feel when people do things that hurt us and how you handle those resentments of life determine whether you are a bitter person or a better person. You've heard it many times. And again, let me remind you, the difference between a bitter person and a better person is that I, just one little letter, I become, I choose to be bitter or I choose to get better. I make the choice. Job 5.2 says it this way. Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. So if none of these approaches uh, resolve my hurts, if they don't heal my hurts, what do I do? In Psalm 23, verse 5, the scene changes from a field to a feast. And David uses the image of a banquet. He gives us three symbols in this part of the 23rd Psalm. These symbols illustrate three steps we need to take in order to let God heal our hurts. David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Three symbols about getting healing from hurts. So to heal the hurt first, let Jesus settle the score. Don't try to get even. Don't seek revenge. Don't retaliate against those who hurt you. Trust God 
to get the odds right. Give it to God. If you'll let God, God will settle the score. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, you understand that this psalm has everything to do with the sheep and the shepherd. We know a lot about sheep. Sheep have natural enemies like wolves and coyotes and bears and snakes and ticks even, right? Sheep are one of the most defenseless animals on the planet. While sheep have teeth, they don't have any really sharp teeth. So it's difficult for them to inflict great wounds if they're going to bite. We know that they can kick, but they don't kick very well. They can run, but they can't run as fast as some of those that would try to take them down. They are one of the most defenseless animals on the planet. They are, as I said, I think in the first week, I'm not sure what the politically correct way is to say this, but I'll just say it. The sheep are just plain dumb animals. If you were to go to Wikipedia and pull up the word dumb, there might be a sheep there, a picture of a sheep, because that's a representation of what that's about. The sheep depend on the shepherd for everything. The job of a good shepherd is to make sure that the sheep are fed. When the sheep are finished grazing in a particular area, the shepherd's job is to go find a new pasture. The shepherd will leave the sheep to go find a new pasture. And then the second thing the shepherd will do is when he finds a new pasture, pasture, he will scour the area to make sure that all the enemies are gone. And only after all the enemies are gone will the shepherd bring the sheep to the place of new pasture. God says, let me handle those who have hurt you. In Romans 12, verse 17 through 21, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God knows the people that have hurt you. God sees the way that you've been hurt. He can and he will settle the score. The Bible says it very clearly that God will one day settle the score. There is a heaven there is a hell. There is also a day of judgment that is coming. God has far more resources than we do to settle the score. And God knows that we cannot recover from our hurt as long as we are seeking revenge. You can't do both of those things at the same time. There's only one way for us to get relief, and that's through forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you say to someone, it's okay what you've done to me. Forgiveness is saying, God, I have this hurt. I need to give this hurt up to you. To trust God to handle the situation. To let him prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. To not try to get even. Now, some of you might be asking, well, why should I forgive? Well, you should forgive because God forgave you. And God wants to press in upon us when we think about this issue of forgiveness because God wants to ask us if we're whether or not we're living by a double standard. And what I mean by saying the double standard is that we want forgiveness from God, but very often we hold forgiveness against somebody else. 
God wants us to think about that and recognize that why is it okay for God to forgive us and we're not going to be forgiving of others? Jesus makes the point even more profoundly when he says that God will not forgive us when we are not forgiving of others. Pretty strong and pretty bold on Jesus' point. He wants us to understand that he's the one who's going to settle the score. The next step to healing hurts is to let Jesus soothe my wounds. David said, you anoint my head with oil. Now we know that shepherds put oil on sheep's heads for two reasons. One to soothe them and one to heal them. The worst enemy of a sheep is a fly. A fly, especially in the summertime, will get up a sheep's nose. And I know it's kind of gross, but a sheep... Uh, when the fly gets up the sheep's nose, what it does is it burrows into the nose, it lays eggs, and then the larvae are hatched. And the larvae make the sheep absolutely crazy. If you were to travel to some regions of the world where there are shepherds and sheep, you might find a sheep banging its head against a rock. And, and you think, well, that's just another example of how dumb the sheep are, right? But but they're banging their head against a rock because they're trying to find a way to get those flies out of their noses. They can't do it with their tails. They can't do it with their hooves. They're trying to get rid of those pests. And isn't it amazing that it's the little things in life that really irritate us? To deal with the flies, a shepherd will take olive oil and sulfur and mix it together and place it on, rub it on the sheep's head, and it becomes an insect repellent to protect them. A shepherd defends the sheep from the irritations of life. The other way that oil is used is as a salve. If a sheep is wounded for some reason, the shepherd will take the olive oil and wipe it over the, over the wound to protect it from insects and provide a barrier so that it might begin to heal. When David says, you anoint my head with oil, he's saying, God is going to soothe my wounds. It's what our shepherd wants to do with us. For us. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads. Anybody here? Anybody at home dealing with heavy loads? Struggling hard? He says, And I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. Isn't it amazing that we have this shepherd that knows how to lighten our burdens if we'll just give them to him? Jesus says, I can handle your hurts. I can bandage you up. And the third step to God healing our hurts is to let Jesus satisfy my needs. David said, my cup overflows. In the Bible, this image of this overflowing cup is a a symbol that Middle Easterners would know. It's a, it's a symbol of ultimate satisfaction. It means I have everything I need. But also in the Middle East, you would understand, because it's mostly desert, if you were going to fill somebody's cup to overflowing, some people might look at that and feel like it's being wasteful. But it's really an, intended to help us understand that God wants to meet every single one of our needs, even to the point of overflowing. When we, when we need to get over a hurt, we need to look to God to meet all of our needs. And this is very important for us because the major reason we get hurt is because we expect other people to meet our needs. We expect other people to do things that only God can do for us. No person 
can give you absolute security in life, give you all the love you, meet, you need or make you happy, if you expect these things from another person, you will always be disappointed. God never meant for us to have all our needs met by another human being. He made us, as we like to say around here, with this God-shaped hole. And the only way for us to get that God-shaped hole filled is to allow Jesus in, where only God can meet our needs. God can and will meet your needs if you'll seek Him. If you'll look to God, your cup will overflow. The Bible says we'll overflow with attributes like love and joy and hope. Related to this, thinking about the cup and the overflowing is maybe a little different question. Have you ever struggled with or wondered, what is the right way to get out of somebody's house when you feel like it's time to go? Because you don't really know whether or not it's time to go and you want to be polite. In the Middle East, one of the great customs they have is there are great people with hospitality. If you were to show up at their house, whether you were a stranger or not, because they valued hospitality, they would invite you in. They would offer you a cup, and they would fill that cup with water or with wine. And, and, and when you finished that cup, you would set it down, and they would come back, and they would fill it again. And the way that you would know that it was time for you to go was that you emptied your cup, and you set it down, and they didn't fill it one more time. That was your symbol. That was your sign that, hey, maybe it's time for us to go. And I think that's kind of a cool tradition, right? But the converse is also true. If they really wanted you to stay, your host would continue to fill your glass no matter how many times you put it down. And in fact, they would go so far as to continue to pour in that cup that the cup would begin to overflow. And that was intended to say to you that you were really special that you are welcome to stay as long as you want. And that's really what David is trying to, to help us understand, that, that we are special, that you are special. Did you know that about you? That you are incredibly special in God's eyes. And that's why David wants us to think about this cup of overflowing, because we are special. Now let's catch the last one from the last verse. Let's deal with fear. Let's talk about fear right now, and specifically fear of the future. We get this from the last verse, Psalm 23, verse 6. Let's read it together. Join with me, please. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. A lot of people spend their lives worrying about tomorrow, and I've talked about it several times now already. We don't enjoy today often because we're too worried about what's coming tomorrow, because we want control over tomorrow. But as David finishes this psalm, he concludes by saying he's not worried. He's confident, David is. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Now, where do you get that kind of confidence? If you're a believer, there are three reasons why we need not fear the future. The first one is because God is watching over me. No matter what happens, God will watch over me. God will bring good out of it somehow. Surely, goodness will follow. What does he really mean by that? Obviously, David had disappointments. Obviously, he did things that were wrong. Not everything good happened to him. He's not saying that only good things will happen. He's saying that when bad things happen, God has this unique ability to bring good out of the bad because he loves us so much. He watches over us. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5 says it this way. 
Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved Son. Think about that, would you? That Jesus is this lavish gift that God gave just for you to provide for you this understanding that God is watching over you. Think about this a moment. Why are you alive? Why do you live? God gave you life so that you could find yourself and have a fulfilled life. Well, how do I find myself and find a fulfilled life? Well, it begins by opening your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And when I say begins, what I mean to say is that by, by inviting Jesus in, opening your heart and saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, you begin a journey unlike any other journey. It begins in this invitation to follow Jesus. And when you do that, David says, then goodness will follow. There's no difficulty, no dilemma, no defeat, no disaster that you will ever experience that ultimately God won't bring good out of it. Jesus felt defeated, didn't he? Think about it. As we enter Holy Week, what happened on Friday, remember when Jesus was on the cross? What did he say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt defeated. Have you ever felt defeated in your life? God knows how to bring good out of defeat. Paul, the apostle, under great discouragement. He, he was shipwrecked. He dealt with disease. He was in prison several times. But God used all of it for his good and for ours as well. Hear this. No matter what happens, you don't need to fear the future because God is watching over you. The second reason we don't need to worry about the future is because grace is working in me. Now, not only will goodness follow you, but it says mercy will follow me also. Now, you understand about grace, I trust. Uh, we use this acronym often about grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a great way to remember grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is about getting something you don't deserve. Like finding a $20 bill on the ground somewhere. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it, but you got it anyway. God's love is far greater than any $20 bill we could ever find. We don't deserve it, but we get it if we ask Him in. And as a result of that grace, we're given mercy. And mercy is really about grace in action. It's, it's, it's grace put into action. And we need mercy because we're imperfect, because we stumble, we fall, we blow it, we make mistakes. In the future, did you know this about you? In the future, in fact, maybe even today, later in the day, you're going to sin. You're going to make a bad decision that's going to separate you from somebody else or something from God. And maybe something that even at the moment, you're not sure that it was a sin. But, but I, I want to assure you that in the next day, in the next month, over the next years, for the rest of your life, there's going to be plenty of sin that you're going to have in your life. Mercy is about getting forgiveness, about being pardoned by God, about receiving healing, even when we don't deserve it. And when you really understand God's grace and mercy, 
what you find out is that God is in the, isn't in the business of trying to make things right, to try to make it even. God isn't trying to get even with you. God isn't trying to beat you down. God doesn't want to, to, to make your life bad. God wants to lift your life up and prosper you because Jesus took the penalty. He paid for all of it. So when bad things happen, don't think God is trying to get even with you. God doesn't get even with things he paid for on the cross. And this is why Easter is so important. And oh, by the way, let me remind you that next Sunday is Easter. But around here, we try frequently to remind everybody that every day is Easter. We celebrate it on Sundays, 52 weeks a year. But we we shouldn't just celebrate that he rose from the dead on a particular Sunday. We should be doing that every single day. Can I get an amen? Because he rose from the grave. Mercy will follow all the days of my life. Not some days or not a few days or not a bunch of days, but all the days of my life. Mercy will follow me. The psalm is about shepherding. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. Maybe you're aware that you lead sheep, but in Texas where there's a lot of cattle, you have to drive cattle. You lead sheep from the front. You drive cattle from the rear. The shepherd is in front. He leads. We follow. If you were to go to the Middle East and, and, and watch a shepherd in action, what you would find is the shepherd is out in front of the sheep. And way in the back, there are a couple of sheepdogs. And the sheepdogs are nipping at the heels of the sheep to make sure they're going in the right direction. We might call those sheepdogs grace and mercy. And then a third reason we don't need to fear the future is because heaven is waiting for me. He says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's one of the most important connections we can make in the Bible because the Bible wants us to understand that God is in the business of dealing with yesterday and today and tomorrow all at once. God wants to provide for us. God says, I've got this great life planned for you, and surely goodness and mercy will follow you through it. But that's not the end. I've got something else at the end. David builds this incredible crescendo, and sometimes we don't hear it because we get reflective when we read the 23rd Psalm. But the very end of the 23rd Psalm is a punctuation mark in which David says, hey, I get to live with God forever. What an amazing gift. And how long is forever? Well, it's forever. It goes on and on and on and on and on. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 2, it says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we'll have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. Forever. We get to live with God forever. Your body is going to end someday. You will die one day. But that's not going to be the end of you. You will live forever in one of two places, either heaven or hell. Both places of real existence. Because we were made to last forever. Sometimes people ask, well, what is heaven going to look like? Well, we get glimpses of it in the book of Revelation, streets of gold, jewels on all the doors. It's just an amazing thing. But think about it this way. 
Think about how amazing this earth is, this planet that we, that we walk on, and all the great vistas and scenes all around the world that, that this world is full of such beauty. If that is what this planet looks like that we get to experience in our earthly bodies, imagine what we can experience in, with our heavenly, heavenly bodies. Imagine how great it's going to be. Heaven is going to be like taking earth and making it a hundred gazillion times better and, and that's the place where we get to live forever. We, we can lay in a hammock if we want to lay in a hammock. We can go uh, around the world. We can go through all of eternity looking and doing so many things that God has planned for us to do. And we never have to deal with pain or sorrow or suffering again. What a great gift that is. In Revelation 21.4, Jesus said he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, gone forever. And I want to invite you to, to think this morning, maybe, are you feeling a little bit homesick for heaven right now? I hope so, because heaven is the place that we are destined to live when we follow Jesus. Last question for you today is, are you ready to die? Are you prepared to die? If you were to die today, what does that feel like in here? Do you have peace in your heart? The only way to have that kind of peace is to be following the shepherd. In John 10, Jesus said it this way, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This has everything to do with following the shepherd. Are you following the shepherd? Would you say Jesus is your Savior? You can never know the gifts of what it means to follow the shepherd until you finally invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And then you'll be confident that he will lead you forever. I want to conclude this morning with one last little picture. It's a picture that uh, Chrissy and I took a week ago. We were out in Tucson visiting my dad for his 92nd birthday, uh, and that's his wife. We call her Mom Jean, uh, and she's 92 also. We were going to my sister's house for a party at the house, and I said, hey, let's take a selfie. My dad has gotten into selfies now because he got a smartphone about a month ago. Now he's on Facebook, and he's taking selfies, and so we're, we're taking selfies all over the place, right? So before we went inside, we took this selfie standing outside, uh, and, and, and uh, Dad and Jean are just such amazing people. Like I said, both of them, 92. Jean had her birthday two months ago. Uh, and because of that, obviously, she's a couple months older than Dad. Dad likes to tell people he's her cougar, right? Uh, that's the kind of fun that they like to have. And oh, how I love my dad. Like I said, 92 years old. But I know just as well as you do that, that uh, his days are, are coming short before too long. That he's not going to live forever on this earth. And when he dies... Yes, I will be sad. I will enter a period of grieving because my earthly dad has died. But I have a heavenly dad too, a heavenly father, who knows how to lead me through that grief. And one day when I die, I will face the reality that even though my dad died 
a physical death, he is alive because I get to see my dad again one day. And not only see him, but experience life with him in a whole new way forever and ever and ever. Who's your shepherd? Who's your shepherd? My prayer for you today is that it's Jesus. Let's pray. Holy God, we ask for your forgiveness this day for those times and places where we follow our own will or we follow the will of somebody else that we lose sight of the real shepherd. God, we pray that in this place, every person who is within the sound of my voice, whether it's here or at home, that they would understand, all of us, that the only way to security, to real peace, is through Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.